Welcome to State Road 49, an audio program that shares extraordinary stories from everyday people. My name is Aaron Freinberger, and we'd like to thank you for coming back. We're always looking for new and interesting stories to bring you, and we would love to hear yours. If you or someone you know has a great story, feel free to contact us on Facebook. Seriously. Anyway, today's comes from Lewis Wembley and the shock of a fire on the west side of Chicago. You would think this is the worst part of the event. And then... I get a phone call like four in the morning, like, hey, you need to get to the church right now. I said, what's wrong? My mom had called me like 10 times and anybody knows me knows I'm not a morning person. So if you call me in the morning, you're gonna have to call 10 times before I actually do anything or look at the phone. So finally I look at the phone and um, I answered my mom called. My father had texted me like 15 times. My mom called like 20 times. Aunt's calling me, everybody's calling me, like everybody. So I'm thinking something horrible happened. I'm like, I'm nervous, my heart is racing. It's 4.30 in the morning, it's, I'm like, I don't know what to do, what's going on? So I called them back. And my mom said, Louis, the church is on fire. I was born on the west side of Chicago, um, grew up in a uh, townhouse. Uh, my neighborhood was known for being right down the street from the United Center. So if you ever go to the United Center back in the day, um, right across the street was a, a project building called Rockwell Gardens. They tore those down, but they didn't tear down the townhomes. And that's where I grew up. The house that we lived in uh, was owned by my grandfather. He still owns those houses over there as well. And um, he worked for Chicago Park District. Uh, he was uh, hired in like 69 or 72 or something like that. And uh, he just recently retired. Uh, last year, he retired after working for Chicago Park District for almost, oh my goodness, 35 or 40 years. So he built a lot of those parks, bought houses and stuff on the west side of Chicago when the market was like, you can get a house for like $100. So he bought our house literally for like $100 in an auction. Probably when I was about 10 years old, he uh, started pastoring a church. And um, this is how I actually got into music, which led me to the event that happened at our church. Um, he picked me up from school, picked me up in his van. He had a Burgundy Astro van, I'll never forget it. And he said, Louis, guess what? I said, what? He said, you start music lessons Wednesday. At the time, I, I didn't want to play piano. I didn't know nothing about a piano. There's no pianos on the west side of Chicago, not to my knowledge. And um, took me all the way to Forest Park, Illinois, to Canaan and Gaines Music School. And he enrolled me in music school for like six months. And um, I started learning the basics, learning the C major scale, C major chords. And he got frustrated with the music teachers because he thought that all music schools taught Christian gospel music. 
So, so after six months of lessons, he's like, how come my grandson don't know any songs? <laughs> Except for the Star Spangled Banner and, <laughs> and uh, this little light of mine. And, uh, you know, Old MacDonald had a farm, you know, just, just, just random little lullaby songs. And I would play those songs on Sundays because I was the church organist. My grandfather had started a church and I was 10 years old. And we did old school congregational songs. And I didn't know anything. I didn't know a jazz or anything. And um, from there, he put me in a, under another teacher who started teaching me how to play. You know, I, I started getting good at it. Probably around 13, probably around 12 or 13, I started traveling. So I started traveling with gospel groups and stuff. So making a long story short, I'm about 16 or 17 years old, and my grandfather appoints me as uh, a youth leader. So I'm the youth pastor of the church, and also I'm the minister of music. Why do you think music was so important to your grandfather? Well, at the time, the style of church and the culture of church in the city of Chicago, in order to be uh, even a church on the radar, you had to have a good organist, a good choir, and good music is what, what attracted the people in the community, along with good outreach. That was, that was one of the reasons why he was so big on music. Like, my aunts could sing, my aunts played drums as well, um, my grandmother sings. And they still do this stuff to this day. But at the time, in order for your church to grow then, you had to have a something where people can go, they got good music, you know, they got good outreach. So that was one of the reasons why. And I picked it up in three years and I started learning. Within three years, I was able to, you know, hold the service down. So at 16, I started a youth ministry at my grandfather's church called Courageous Youth. And we met on Tuesday nights. And um, I didn't know anything about youth ministry. I mean, we were doing stuff, you know, just hole in the wall youth ministry stuff like Foursquare and, and you know, just, just, just trying to think of something to get the kids off the streets. That's all I wanted. I just wanted them to, I just wanted to get the neighborhood kids off the street. So we opened up our church on Tuesday nights at like five o'clock. So we had computers and stuff. And, they would come and do their homework, and we fed them every Tuesday. We had donuts, we had pizza. The local grocery store, like, literally donated food to us as well because we just wanted to get the kids off the, off the streets. And I was the youth pastor from probably 16 to, like, probably 20. Yeah, four years of doing youth ministry. So, And it grew. It grew. It started with, like, 20, probably 15 kids to, like, 50 kids. You know, for the time, we had a pretty good, you know, youth ministry growing, so I was real passionate about it. Still doing music at the same time. My grandfather's church started in the afternoons on Sundays at 1, so I was able to play for other churches in the morning. So I played for like a 7 a.m. service, a 9 a.m. service, and it's just for extra income because my family, they, we didn't have any money. Like my parents were CNAs. They were trying to be nurses. And um, my music income was like their regular two-week income. So I was able to help bills and take care of my brother and, you know, buy our school stuff. They didn't have to worry about it. God gave me a lot of favor in the area, too, so I got connected with a lot of people across the country, started traveling, et cetera. So now we're, we've, uh, our church has grown. We bought a new building on 15th and Drake. It was an old Jewish synagogue. And in the city of Chicago, it's almost impossible to build a church because there's so many like zoning codes, building codes. So the best thing to do is to buy an old Catholic building or old Jewish synagogue and then renovate that, and then you can have your church services there because those buildings were already zoned. 
They're already grandfathered in. Right, they're already grandfathered into the city. So usually those buildings were grandfathered in like in the 50s and the 40s, uh, even the 30s. So we bought a building that was already zoned. You know, we're in this new building and uh, stuff is still moving in, you know, trying to move my youth group from the west side of that area to this area. So one Friday night, we were renting our building out to another ministry. And at this time, I'm 21 years old. And um, my grandfather and my whole family, they had finally took a trip by themselves. Now, when I was growing up, our family trips were AKA slash church trips. So when we went to Wisconsin Dales, the church bus was behind us. And so while they're driving down, um, I'm at the church by myself. I'm there to get the keyboard, and then I went home. And well, I went to bed, you know, whatever. I get a phone call like four in the morning, like, hey, you need to get to the church right now. I said, what's wrong? My mom had called me like 10 times, and anybody knows me knows I'm not a morning person. So if you call me in the morning, you're gonna have to call 10 times before I actually do anything or look at the phone. So finally, I look at the phone and um, I answer it, my mom called. My father had texted me like 15 times. My mom called like 20 times. Aunt's calling me, everybody's calling me, like everybody. So I'm thinking something horrible happened. I'm like, I'm nervous, my heart is racing. It's 4.30 in the morning. It's, I'm like, I don't know what to do, what's going on? So I called them back and my mom said, Louis, the church is on fire. The very first thought I thought was, am I dreaming? I'm thinking this is a dream. I'm like, okay, I'm dreaming. Louis, wake up. There's no way the church could be on fire. I was just there the night before. So what I did was I jumped out of my bed, threw some pants on, I, I threw, a, threw a shirt on, grabbed my coat, hopped in the car. I hit I-57 North, and I was, I was probably doing like 90 the whole way because it's a 35-minute drive. So I, I get there, and um, the Douglas Park community is, um, they literally like try to do the fire, the fireman's job. Like they were like outside, like trying to throw, the, I, when I pulled up, they were throwing buckets of water against the wall and stuff. And um, when I pulled up, there was a fire truck on the other side of the building and they were trying to find a way to get the, uh, get the fire, get air, get the fire out of the building so that it wouldn't uh, explode or something like that. When I pulled up, it was just fire coming out of the windows. I mean, this was a, this was a tall building. And when I pulled up, it was just like, the, the back part of the of the facility, which is which was the sanctuary, it was just fire, just just fire all through the roof, fire all through the roof, fire all through the the grounds area, fire all through the corners, and I'm like, smoke was just all down the street. I mean, you could just you can see the smoke pulling up until the street, and um, I was like, oh my goodness, what is going on? I didn't I didn't know what to do, so I pull up to the facility, I get out of the car. I see a fire truck come from the opposite side of the street. When you buy a Jewish facility, what makes it, what makes it a, a historic landmark sometimes, it might sound kind of weird, it's, it's the little details like the windows, um, the doors, um, handles, um, the, in, the interior design of the, of the sanctuary, which was like created in like the 40s and 50s. So the windows is what makes our facility and along with the interior a historic landmark. And it was also one of the places where the community leaders and aldermen did their speeches back in like the 50s and 60s. But anyway, so I watched this fireman go up the rail and he bust the window. And when he bust the window, I was like, not our windows. <laughs> like, cause you have done something else. I mean, he bust the windows. And when he busted this, this huge like boom of fire just came out of the window. It was. It was crazy. So they just started busting all the windows, like all around the windows, every window around the facility. It was just busting the windows, busting the windows. 
they were trying to make sure that uh, something didn't happen. It was something with it was something with our gas, the way we had our gas set up, and they were trying to make sure that it, nothing would cause an explosion or anything. Um, so while they were doing their job, another fireman was asking me questions about the facility. He was like, hey, do y'all use propane? How do y'all, you know, what do y'all do with, as far as, you know, heat? Where's the uh, where's the cooler area? Where's the, you know, where's all the heating stuff at? And I said, well, the heating stuff is like downstairs, you know, toward this direction of the facility, which was cool. He said, okay, great, because if it was in the back, he said, then we would have to evacuate this whole area for an explosion. After they put the fire out, the last thing that happened was they had to go on the roof because uh, another side of the facility had actually sparked down the fire, so they broke a hole in the top of the roof. Um, the beautiful part about the situation with the fire was that the facility, the actual building structure itself, stood the fire. The worship center and the sanctuary was completely gone, like burned up. Pews, organ, everything, drums, it was completely burned up. Matter of fact, the fire started near the organ. It was, it was an electrical fire. So when I walked into the facility, the area where the organ set up, the entire section, it was just completely gone as if it had never had a platform there whatsoever. I was so shooken up because the back of my mind, something kept telling me this is your fault. And when I walked into the facility, the only family member that I had was my great aunt. She was there, she came to the facility. Um, and she was with me when we walked into the facility and two of our board members. And when we walked into the facility and when I saw the worship center, the sanctuary, everything was just burned up. The only thing that I could think was all of our work, all of our efforts, like all of our outreach stuff, all of our you know, fundraisers, everything that we had done as a family and as a church was completely destroyed. My emotions were everywhere. Uh, I first was trying to wonder who was here, did, did they get out last night? Um, I, I felt like I should have came back to the facility to just like double check everything because we had rented it out to another ministry, but that ministry was like family to us, you know, so we had a great relationship with them. It was like kind of one of those things where, you know, it was like a friend was having a service, you know, at a Friday night. So we were, it was no need to be, uh, to check behind them because they had hosted services before, several services before. And, you know, we just always communicated on the phone, like, hey, you know, lock up, you know, whatever y'all do, we'll clean it up tomorrow, blah, 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 blah. And uh, my grandfather had called me that morning, like, hey, such and such is going to be in the church tonight. Just, you know, open up the doors for him, cut on the air, et cetera, et cetera. And I did. Um, I went there, cut the air on, grabbed my keyboard, left. And when the church caught on fire, when I got there the next morning, I couldn't believe that what I was seeing, like, I, I couldn't believe it. Now, I was just dreading the phone call that I was going to have to make to my granddad. I was dreading it. So he calls me, and he was very, he wasn't crying or yelling. He said, are you okay? And that really calmed me down. Like, I didn't know what to say to him, but when he asked me, was I okay? It was like, it was like something in me was like, he cares more about you than anything, because they knew I was there the night before. They knew I was coming to get my keyboard. They knew I had a studio session um, the next morning. Um, and they were just hoping that I wasn't in it. That's why he didn't explain. That's why we called you so much because you didn't answer the phone. We thought you may have stayed at the church because they thought I was in the fire. And he said, okay, good. That's, what, that's, that's, what most, that's what's most important. And then he asked me, how bad is it? So I told him, I said, granddad, the only thing that's standing is the building. 
I said in the offices are fine, downstairs is fine, but the, the sanctuary is totally, totally destroyed by the fire. And, um, you know, he took a long pause. I'll never forget it. He took a long pause. And when he finally said something back, he was like, okay. And then he handed the phone to my grandmother. And then my grandmother started asking me, am I okay? You know, what happened? You know, what, what were they saying? And um, so all of this is happening. And the next thing you know, like, like the Chicago, like, Tribune shows up, Chicago Sun-Times, uh, the fire department, um, fire marshal, he shows up, uh, Chicago Police Department shows up, ABC, NBC. So this was an extremely big yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah, it was a big deal because everybody was there. I literally, I went from one reporter to the next for, like, probably the next six hours. Like, I was there all day that Saturday. I was there from 5 a.m. all the way until, like, 1, 2 o'clock because we had to board off the windows. And, um... So we went from one reporter to the next, Chicago Police Department. But the fire marshal pulled me aside, and he said this to me. He says, where's your grandfather? He says, where's the owner? I said, he's in Florida. And he makes a face to me. He made a facial expression that was like, mm, that's interesting. So he says, okay, we're going to have to look into this. We're going to have to really, you know, we have, might have to bring you down and ask you some questions. I said, oh, okay. He said, um, we did find the source of the fire. It was an electrical. And I kind of knew that, you know, kind of knew it. He said it was an electrical fire, and he said this is where it started. So this is now we're walking into the facility. So he's walking with me. We're inside the facility, and he's telling me this is where the fire started. I said, okay. Then he starts asking me questions about our membership size and where my grandfather was, where was the family at. I didn't know this, but the questions that he was asking me were precautionary questions like to see, you know, this, you know, what, why would this happen? This building has been standing here for decades, you know, and it had never had a fire. The facility had never had a fire before. So they're like, what's going on? You know, this facility's been in this community for years. Um, make a long story short, he, he was using certain verbiage that was making me kind of nervous. And he said to me, well, we're going to talk to you real soon. He said, because this is interesting. That's what he kept saying. And um, one reporter made a, made a, a comment like, uh, the building is under investigation. This is her standing in front of the camera, like talking. I'm on the other side, like across the street, and I'm overhearing her conversation. And she's saying, this building is under investigation. And I look out of the corner of my eye like, why is the building under investigation? I don't understand. And then I, I'm walking across the street, so I'm ignoring it. I'm like, Louis, just ignore it. So I cross the street, and I hear another reporter. They're saying the same thing. Yeah, local, you know, Westside Chicago Fire, under investigation. So this is really starting to change yeah, all the Yeah, it's changing all, yeah. Do you feel like maybe you were being mistreated? I mean... Do you think they were doing their job, or do you think they were just trying to make a story out of nothing? Or, I mean, what, what's your thought on that? After a while, I spoke to my aunt, who is a, um, she's a detective now. At the time, she was a, uh, just a police officer. And she told me, she said, Louis, be careful with your answers because they can use your words against you, whatever. And uh, my other cousin showed up to the fire. He's a, he's a sergeant. So he was kind of like speaking on behalf of our family. Hey, they're not like that, they're not like this, blah, blah, blah. But when I noticed that before he shows up, <laughs> obviously I was sitting there like, they're trying to make this look like this is a planned thing. They're trying to make this look like, you know, like we set this whole thing up. Were you scared? I was I was terrified. I was, I didn't know what to do. I mean, reporter after reporter, they were just, I mean, guys were coming out of nowhere. You know, what you see with the cameras, you know, it's different because then they'll send journalists to you. So I was, I was on camera and I was talking to journalists simultaneously, like probably every 10 or 15 minutes, 10 to 15 different stations or little articles or whatnot. Uh, in that, after that event, um, my heart is beating, I'm sweating, 
I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. I just know, I was like, Lord, I'm being honest. I'm telling the truth. We didn't do anything. My aunt's texting me. She's calling me. She's a cop. She's walking me through like, look, listen, you know what You know what happened. You know the truth. Uh, my grandfather's in the background like, yeah, it's our fault. We should have had, we should have got the insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the whole deal was just, it just made me super, super, super scared. I'm like, I'm going down. <laughs> I'm like, they about to put me in Cook County. They later came back and did another story on us the following day on Sunday morning. So this is what happened. They came on Saturday and they interviewed us, but then Sunday morning, um, someone told the reporters, I don't know why they did it, but they told one of the reporters that we were gonna come back Sunday morning and clean up and pray. Uh, we were gonna do it at our regular service time, which was, our services were 11 a.m. So we showed up to board up, the, the windows were already boarded, but we showed up to just pray together as a board to see what was gonna happen and what direction we were gonna go. And the reporter shows up and they're taking pictures, and they're like, they're, they're writing and interviewing us. I told them personally, I said, we did not have insurance on the facility. So there was no, there was no gain from this fire for our family, my grandfather, none of that. He emptied all his money to buy this facility, like we had nothing. And they put in the report that the building wasn't insured, which kind of like brought the whole under investigation speech and you know, they threw that out the window. Um, from there, the church next across the street from us, the pastor, uh, he actually opened up his facility to us, and um, he let us use his facility on Sundays until we were able to get on our feet. And um, we had services at his church every Sunday for like probably six months and um, until we were able to renovate the basement of our burn facility. And so we renovated the basement, we cleaned the basement up, we got every, we cleaned it up, I mean, it was nice. And so we moved out of his church and we moved into our basement. However, our sanctuary was still so destroyed. We had just cleaned up the pieces. Many people from our community, they actually came and helped us clean up. Unfortunately, we did have some stories of people like trying to break in and stuff. So what ended up happening was like sometimes our family members, like we would ask different ones to just like go check on the facility. And because we lived in the area, we would drive around just to see what's going on. But they did come together because it was an old Jewish synagogue. And I don't know anything about the membership or partnership of the Jews to Jewish synagogues in Chicago. But I do know this, that they have this inner loyalty to those synagogues. And so a lot of Jewish families donated money to our church. It, it was incredible. We did a gospel concert and uh, we did a fundraiser. And it was kind of like a buy a pew fundraiser. Each member was supposed to like adopt a pew. And it was a cool idea. Somebody had gave it to us. So we like, okay, cool. Probably the beginning of 2013, the entire facility, the sanctuary of my grandfather's church was totally renovated. Carpet was in, new pews were in, he got a new sound system. So we just kept going, you know, we kept going as a family, we kept going, kept holding services, kept, you know, reaching the community. You walk into the facility, it doesn't even look like like it was ever anything to happen to it, you know. And it makes me feel good, but at the same time, I, I can't help but remember how I felt during it. Like this is my fault. Somebody kept telling me something was just like like eating my conscience up. Like this is your fault. You should have came back. You should have did this. You should have did that. You should have did this. And something that gave me peace was. My grandfather, we talked face to face. Now they had came back 
and um, they cut they, they Florida trip short. And I came back and me and him talked face to face. And he said to me, he said, Lewis, there was nothing you could have done to avoid what happened. And he kept telling me this, it's not your fault. And um, I, just the tears that were just forming in my eyes, like, it's not my fault. His one conversation, he gave me so much freedom. To this day, I don't even talk about what fully happened with people unless someone asks me because I, I built this cage to tell myself, like, it was my fault. And that's been six years ago, and now they're fine. They're, they've recovered. They got more members. They got better facility than me, new stuff. He upgraded all around the facility. Like, But I still remember getting out of my car and, and looking at the facility and, and seeing the horrific stuff. God knows that I didn't have the strength to, to handle it, um, but our board, um, our community, and my aunt, and um, other friends of mine, they literally came to me to like undergird me and just to keep me lifted. This would probably be one of the lowest points of my life, something that I actually live with. Either you have to turn and get in a different position, or I have to turn. And this is the same way with God. We see God one way. In order to see who he really is, he turns a little bit. And we see a different side of God that we would not have seen in this season of our life. So, for example, when I was facing that, I saw a different side of God. I didn't see the God who speaks loudly and, and, and prophesies and, and, and yells victory and stuff. I, I saw the God who gives you strength. And I would not have seen that side of God if he would not have turned me well, if life wouldn't have turned the way that it turned. And I think that's, that's the side of God that I learned about him in, my, in what I faced in that trial and in that test. I learned the God that gives us the strength to get up. There's a side of Jesus that says, bring the little children to me, you know, but then there's also another side of Jesus that says, go and sin no more. There's, there's so many different facets to this thing of, of Christianity, but you won't fully see who God is if you, if you have not went through anything that reveals his character in a different light. So he's not only with me when I'm, when I'm going through great stuff, but he's also with me even when I'm going through horrible, horrific, you know, depressing stuff. At that time in our life, our church, our family, our church family, we were experiencing a lot of like victories. Like we were raising money, we had bought a new building, and you know, and, and, and stuff was just going up. Our ministries were growing, people were showing up, people were coming, and this happens, the facility burns up. This question comes to mind, how are we gonna have church? The Lord was just showing me, like, even though the facility caught on fire, it did not stop the church. Even with me looking at the situation, I could say, why, why, why? But now that I've come out of it and, and God is restored, I can honestly say that that situation happened to get us to see what the church really is. Because we thought, because of how we were raised growing up in a Pentecostal denomination, that church was facilities, conventions, conferences, convocation, big choir, big band, big vocals, great preaching, great teaching, and Holy Spirit literally allowed all of this to happen to kind of get us to see what church really is. Church is not the building. It's just the place where we gather. The church is us. Once again, that was Lewis Wimbley. To learn more about him, check out lewiswimbley.org or click the link on the show notes. And again, contact us if you have a good story. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron Freinberger, and this is State Road 49.
Design is produced by Aaron Freinberger, Matt Willingham, and Garrett Schultz. It is executive produced by the Heartland Christian Center. Visit their website at hcc3d.com. That is hcc3d.com. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by Garrett Schultz. Music by Thomas Kilobas. For more information about the program, visit us at facebook.com slash stateroad49. This program was produced in Valparaiso, Indiana.